Half-Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at The Frighteners from 1996. Written by Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson, and directed by Peter Jackson, which makes two episodes in a row that I'm featuring an Academy Award-winning director on the show. But the Peter Jackson who made The Frighteners wasn't that Peter Jackson yet. At this point in his career, he was mainly known as a scrappy, independent filmmaker from New Zealand who'd had modest success with a couple of low-budget, sick comedies. His first movie was actually called Bad Taste before hitting it big with a gore-soaked salute to excess called Brain Dead, and parlaying that hit into arthouse credibility with a film called Heavenly Creatures. I'm not just mentioning this to give background, either. Brain Dead, released in the U.S. as Dead Alive, is a hyperkinetic horror comedy with buckets of blood and a style that owes a lot to Sam Raimi and his Evil Dead movies, and Heavenly Creatures is a psychological drama based on a notorious murder case in New Zealand where two teenage girls formed an intense and obsessive bond which eventually led to the murder of one of the girl's mother when she tried to separate the two. It's hard to see The Frighteners as anything but his two biggest indie hits and trying to turn them into studio gold, and I remember feeling very sad when its commercial failure meant that we probably wouldn't get another big-budget Hollywood movie from it. You may all now laugh. Incidentally, a word on commercial failure, because this is something I've had a lot of very frustrating arguments about with people over the years. Yes, technically the Frighteners made $29.3 million on a production budget of $26 million, and people will look at that and say, how can you call something that made almost $3 million of profit a failure? But there are several things to keep in mind when discussing the commercial success of a film. One, the box office is split with the theater on a roughly 50-50 take. Some films manage to negotiate a slightly higher percentage of the gross, but I don't think that even the Star Wars movies at the absolute height of their popularity managed more than 60%, and usually it's right around 50. So the Frighteners only made the studio 13 million. But it's worse than that, because the production budget only covers the amount spent to make the film. Striking a print to send around to theaters was an additional expense not covered in the initial budget, and even though very few theaters still use actual film reels anymore, there are nonetheless enormous expenses involved in copy protecting, storing, and maintaining the infrastructure for digital distribution, and those expenses are soaked entirely by the studio. Plus, there's the expense of advertising the movie on radio, television, print, and internet outlets, and putting trailers in front of other movies, all of which cost money. The prints and advertising, or P&A budget, can sometimes approach the same amount as the production budget. So to make actual money on a movie, you have to at least make double, and sometimes triple what the budget is listed as, to say nothing of the fact that many movies run over their official budget in post-production, especially ones with expensive and groundbreaking digital effects like this one. Jackson bought Weta Digital, the FX company that did all the CGI for this movie, so much new equipment and technology that they wound up pitching for Lord of the Rings simply to justify the expense. And it's yet worse than that because of a thing called opportunity cost, which is to say that a movie studio does not have unlimited time and money to devote to making movies. They have to pick and choose projects, and if they choose one that makes them $3 million over one that could have made them $30 million, then they've effectively left $27 million sitting on the table. 
Now, that's not an actual loss. There's still 3 million up rather than being 27 million in the hole, but you'd definitely rather have the bigger number. This really matters more with the big tentpole summer blockbusters like Justice League, which grossed $400 million less than its directly comparable competitor, The Avengers. Somebody was going to be held responsible for that shortfall, basically. All of which is a very long-winded way of saying that this movie nearly torpedoed Peter Jackson's career, and also that yes, the last action hero really was a box office bomb. Thank you for your patience. It's worth mentioning that the copy of this DVD I received for my birthday, thank you, is the so-called director's cut, the practice of recutting a movie after the theatrical release really got going in 1992 when Ridley Scott released his version of Blade Runner to great commercial and critical success, and there's often an assumption that the director's cut represents a purer and better version of the movie. But as with just about any description... But as with just about any description that sells a product, it's often misleading. In this case, The Frighteners celebrated its 10th anniversary right around the peak of Jackson's Hollywood success, and it was hoped that releasing a version with new footage might boost the profile of his early flop and get it to make some money. Most of the changes are relatively minor, and to be honest, not always beneficial, but if you saw the movie and you hear me talking about a scene you don't remember, that's why. The film stars Michael J. Fox as Frank Bannister. It's unlikely you don't know who Fox is, even after an extended period of semi-retirement due to the impact of Parkinson's disease on his ability to speak. He's an A-list Hollywood actor who headlined a number of blockbuster movies and hit TV shows, most notably, at least in genre terms, the Back to the Future trilogy. In fact, that's what got him the job. Executive producer Robert Zemeckis, who was originally considering The Frighteners as part of the Tales from the Crypt series of movies, uh, there were two official Tales from the Crypt releases and a third movie that was released without the Tales from the Crypt uh, logo after it was discovered that really that didn't help the box office very much at all, um, and this was one of the ones that they had planned for it. Zemeckis thought that Fox would be right for the role and passed the script along to him. This was Fox's last film role. Shooting in New Zealand for an extended period made him realize that he wanted to stay close to his family, something more easily done with television work than movie work. It co-stars Trini Alvarado as Lucy Linsky. Alvarado doesn't have a lot of credits, but she worked consistently through the 90s and 2000s with guest roles on television and parts in films like The Babe and Little Women. That's The Babe, the Babe Ruth biopic, not Babe, the talking pig important difference. Her husband, the hapless and obnoxious Ray, is played by character actor Peter Dobson. Dobson has made something of a living portraying 50s guys in films like Forrest Gump, where he was a young Elvis Presley, and Norma Jean and Marilyn, where he was Joe DiMaggio. The ghostly trio that helps Frank in his adventures is John Astin as the judge, Aston has been all over film and television since the late 50s, but he's probably best remembered as the original Gomez Adams on the black and white version of the Adams Family, and as the eccentric Buddy Ryan on Night Court. Oh, and as father of Lord of the Rings stalwart Sean Aston. Chi McBride as Cyrus, probably best known for his long-running role on the recent Hawaii Five-O reboot, but genre fans with a good ear might recognize him as the voice of Nick Fury on most of the Marvel cartoons of the last decade, and Jim Fife as Stewart, who doesn't have a ton of credits, but who is Jimmy the Geek on The X-Files and The Lone Gunman. Jeffrey Combs plays FBI agent Dammers, and 
look, I could write a whole book on cones, and honestly I might have to because nobody's done it yet and I can't imagine why. He is the genre actor's genre actor, with leading roles in From Beyond, the Reanimator series, and tons of fun schlock like Dr. Mordred. He's also done villain roles, guest spots, and supporting roles in everything from Babylon 5 to Star Trek Voyager to Justice League Unlimited to The Man with Two Brains to Super Robot Monkey Team Hyperforce Go. That's real. That's right out of the IMDb. This is not the last time we'll be talking about him. And he's wonderful in this movie. And the villains of the movie, spoilers, are Jake Busey as Johnny Bartlett and Dee Wallace as Patricia Bradley, credited here as Dee Wallace Stone. Busey is, of course, the son of Gary Busey and has a long career that stretches through most of the last few decades and includes a signature role in Starship Trooper, as well as parts in Stranger Things and From Dust Till Dawn, the TV show. Well, Dee Wallace was deliberately cast against type here on the assumption that no one would suspect the mom from E.T. to be the killer. That's not all she's done, of course. She's also famous to horror fans as the star of Cujo and The Howling, part of a decades-long career that continues to the present day. I'm very excited to see her in The Nest. The special effects were done by Weta Digital. This was really the movie that made Weta Digital, even though the company was officially created to handle FX work on heavenly creatures. It wound up being the shop of choice for the Lord of the Rings movies, iRobot, King Kong, Avatar, and many if not most of the Marvel films over the next couple of decades. Sadly, it turns out that like many companies in the industry, it's been a toxic and misogynistic workplace for most of its existence, something that only started coming out in September of last year, but hopefully things will improve in the wake of an independent audit commissioned by Jackson and the other owners. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the score was done by Danny Elfman of Batman, Beetlejuice, and The Nightmare Before Christmas fame. Like many of the people who worked on this film, he saw Heavenly Creatures and immediately signed on to Peter Jackson's next project, Sight Unseen. Which is roughly what happened with New Line and the Lord of the Rings movies as well, because this film wasn't a high-profile flop, just an undistinguished commercial failure. They signed Jackson on the strength of his indie classic and committed to three movies before the first one was ever released. Apparently they got very nervous when they went to visit him and saw the posters for Brain Dead, Bad Taste, and Meet the Feebles up in his office. The film begins with a cold open that wears Samuel Raimi's influences pretty clearly on its sleeve. We see an old, crumbling mansion that the camera moves into and through in a long tracking shot that ends with a terrified woman in her mid-forties being pursued by a spectral figure inside the walls. The fluid, hyperkinetic camera work screams Raimi, but it's also very reminiscent of a common influence on the both of them, Robert Wise and his movie The Haunting. For those who haven't seen it, it's based on the legendary novel The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, and uses a lot of inventive camera work and strange shooting angles to add suspense to what is one of the more famously bloodless haunted house stories. Raimi stole from it almost shot for shot for the scene with the ghost of Professor Nobi in Evil Dead 2. More directly relevant, it contains a scene where a wooden door bulges and distends like rubber under the pressure of something on the other side in an impossible way. This was later redone in more spectacular fashion for A Nightmare on Elm Street, where Freddy's silhouette pushes out of a wall, and here Jackson uses CGI to make the effect more elaborate still. Again, doing some CGI advocacy here, this scene could not have been done practically. The ghost moves too fast and too fluidly through too much of the house to achieve the effect as it's traditionally been done with a rubber sheet decorated to look like a part of the wall, 
And even though it does look a bit cartoonish to modern eyes, thanks to 25 years of advances in computer graphics, it also has a kinetic energy and an urgency that would have been literally impossible even a few years previously. It also, it must be said, doesn't really connect with the rest of the movie. As we watch the terrified woman, Patricia, although we won't find that out for some time, flee through the house, screaming for help and pursued by the ghost, we have no idea what's happening. We've been kind of thrown in at the deep end here, and the older woman shouting things like, The sins of the flesh will ruin her, just seems to add more chaos to the situation. But on rewatching, this is clearly Patricia Bradley being pursued and attacked by the ghost of Johnny Bartlett. But in every other scene, they're lovers who have an almost playfully obsessive relationship with each other. There's no reason given why Johnny would be chasing her, and no reason why she would be terrified of him, at least not to the degree she is. They do see show them playfully chasing each other around later in the movie, but it's very clearly a playful event there, and here she is playing it very seriously. It really seems to be a scene that's deliberately misleading the viewer so that her later reveal as Johnny's willing accomplice comes as more of a shock, which is something of a cheat, even though the chase itself is effectively shot and staged. It ends with Bartlett manifesting inside the hallway rug to grab at her, the old woman shooting the rug's head with a shotgun, and a specter flying out of the hole at the camera as the opening credits roll. Over the credits, we see newspaper editor Magda Reese jones helpfully supplying us with key exposition as she discusses the small town of Fairwater, supposedly in the Midwest, but with high rolling hills and sweeping ocean vistas that were just too pretty for Jackson not to shoot. I guess we're pretending it's somewhere in Washington State, because there's mountains. It is not the Midwest. It is nothing like the Midwest. And its problems with a spate of mystery deaths that has baffled medical science. Over 30 young and healthy people in the last four years, according to these newspaper editors, the actual death count, as we'll get later, is about 25 at this point have all died from inexplicable heart attacks. Again, as we later find, it's really more like heart implosions, casting a pall over the town not seen since, quote, the infamous 1964 Bradley Bartlett murder spree, unquote. It's funny how many times they mention the Bradley Bartlett murder spree for something that it's intended to be kind of a third act twist, but they do establish it very well so that when it comes later on in the movie, you're not feeling like it came out of left field, and to me, it's okay if you telegraph it a little so long as it doesn't feel completely unearned. Magda sends her reporter out to one of the recent funerals to talk to the family, which seems a little ghoulish, but not nearly as ghoulish as Frank Bannister visiting the graveside to hand out business cards for his psychic investigator gig. Bannister is shooed away as the reporters take photos, and he drives off in an elderly, beat-up Volvo that he's so terrible behind the wheel of that it's almost impressive. There's some really good stunt driving in this movie, I'll be honest. Sure enough, he crashes through a picket fence and into the yard of Ray Linsky, a proud homeowner who's extremely irate about the damages and threatens to sue. Now that's a lot to unpack in less than five minutes of screen time, but we can start with Frank Bannister. Because the weirdest thing about this movie isn't that Frank can see ghosts. It's that he can actually talk to ghosts, and yet he's worse at making a living as a con artist than many, if not most, of the people who can't. It never fails to boggle my mind that Frank could make a fortune as a legitimate psychic, and yet he's decided not only to forego that in favor of hiring ghosts to stage hauntings that he can pretend to exercise, 
but that he's also so bad at it that he's 15 grand in debt to the bank. For that matter, he could just go back to work as an architect and make the money he needs in about six months. It's an odd, almost inexplicable decision on his part, and the movie makes a whole lot more sense if you assume that he's engaging in a lot of deliberate self-sabotage as part of his survivor's guilt over his wife's death. Even then, dude, you could just develop a drinking problem or something. Leaping into a full-time career as a supernatural scammer seems a little bit, you know, extra. While Frank hands off his card to Ray, Dr. Lucy Linsky, Ray's wife as we'll learn, is paying a house call to the Bradleys to help bandage up Patricia's hand after it was cut by some flying crockery during the cold open. It has to be said, actor Juliana McCarthy really understands that her assignment here is to be as off-putting as possible in order to make Patricia sympathetic by comparison, and she really goes for it. She's abrupt, hostile, secretive, and tells lies about the source of Patricia's injury that any physician would spot. A knife cuts very differently than the edge of a broken plate. And her final line before she closes the door on Lucy and kicks her out is wonderful. They said she was an accessory after the fact. I know the truth. It was cold-blooded murder. She's having a lot of fun with her part, and more power to her. This leads Lucy to investigate Patricia's background, and luckily she finds a videotape about famous murder sprees that shows footage of Johnny Bartlett shouting to reporters, Got me a score of 12, sir! That's one more than Starkweather! Which is a bit on the nose in some ways, because Bartlett and Bradley are very clearly inspired by the infamous Charles Starkweather murder spree of the late 50s. I've said before that this isn't a true crime podcast, but I am going to summarize this a little bit, because even though Starkweather has faded somewhat from memory in the wake of a number of other more infamous killing sprees, it is worth discussing him and his accomplice-slash-hostage-slash-fellow-murderer accounts very Kirill Fugati, because they were so famous in their day and inspired so many fictional killers into existence that there are probably people writing pastiches of them that don't even know it. So a quick summary. Starkweather was a violent nihilist who grew up poor and resented others for their success in life. He coined a personal philosophy, dead people are all on the same level, and at the age of 19 he kidnapped his 14-year-old girlfriend. They'd been dating for two years, which wasn't quite the red flag in 1958 that it would be now, and killed her family, then went on a cross-country murder and robbery spree that lasted eight days and claimed ten lives. His 11th victim was a gas station attendant that he'd killed a month or so previously. He was executed in the electric chair on June 25, 1959, with Fugati, who claimed to be his hostage, sentenced to life in prison and paroled after 17 years. The killings directly inspired the films Badlands, California, and Natural Born Killers, and indirectly inspired a number of Stephen King's more nihilistic human monsters. And this movie, where the killing spree took place over one day in a local hospital and claimed 12 victims before police finally subdued the pair. As with Fugati, Patricia Bradley's exact role in the killings was never made fully clear. According to the video Lucy watches, Patricia was paroled five years ago to live with her mother, which is extremely amusing if you're following the film's chronology because it means that the video is basically narrating events right up to the movie's present. Any newer, and it probably would have mentioned that she got a cut on her hand the previous evening. Ray doesn't like finding out that his wife, emphasis on his, was in the house with a potentially dangerous woman, and he tells her not to go back in a scene that establishes with great economy that he's a pompous and domineering buffoon, and Lucy is already checking out of their marriage to the point where she's the one forgetting their anniversary. 
I know it seems like a little detail, but movies often work in shorthand, and Husband Forgets His Wife's Anniversary as a quick way of setting up a male character as a neglectful spouse is so common that it's practically cliché, so to see it reversed onto the wife is highly significant. He's booked their favorite table at their favorite restaurant, and I do wonder how they could have a favorite table so fast if they've only lived here three months. But then again, Ray seems like he's the kind of guy who could say something like that after just one night out and without even realizing that Lucy hates the place. Which, by the way, she clearly does. Trini Alvarado nails the facial acting there when he mentions the name of the restaurant. Just as he's beginning to get amorous with Lucy, and like McCarthy, Peter Dobson really gets that his job in this movie is to be someone who we're actively rooting to see out of the way so that Frank and Lucy can wind up together at the end. Spoilers. Ray finds Frank's business card tucked into the folds of their bedspread. Knowing that he tore up the card Frank gave him earlier, he immediately gets suspicious. But then the lights start flickering, the bed levitates, their keepsakes come to life, a walking Raggedy Ann doll may be a nod to the legend of Annabelle, and an Elvis statuette is definitely a nod to Dobson's role in Forrest Gump. And in the director's cut, at least, a chicken climbs out of the fridge and walks down the hall toward them. Lucy gives in and calls Frank, who shows up and delivers a line of paranormal gibberish that sounds very much like the patter delivered more sincerely in the movie Ghostbusters. He offers to get rid of the ghosts in exchange for simply calling off the damages he did to Ray's fence and lawn, and proceeds to summon the quote-unquote poltergeist into a device that looks like an old radio. Again, the strangest thing about this is how much he makes it look like a con, even though the house is genuinely haunted and he's legitimately getting rid of real ghosts. The only fraud involved here is that he convinced them to enter the house, and yet everyone involved is going to walk away feeling like he's a complete and total fake. Again, you have to assume that this is deliberate on his part. On some level, he probably feels like he is living a fraud, playing the role of devoted widower even though he knows that he spent the last minutes of his wife's life arguing with her over trivialities, and he doubtless blames himself for her death. Sorry, spoilers, but you can't really talk about Frank's new career without talking about his problems. On some level, he wants people to hate him and blame him, and so he's chosen a path that allows him to believe that he can be successful and loathed at the same time. But just in case we, the audience, are starting to believe that this is a movie about a fake psychic encountering real ghosts, Ray takes off the cold compress he's been holding over the bump on the head he got from the ghosts, and Frank sees a glowing number 37 etched into his forehead. A number that apparently only he can see. Unable to explain the phenomenon, Frank departs, and a specter hiding in the walls watches him go. Again, this is a scene that plays a little differently on rewatching. We know from the back half of the movie that the numbers come from Bartlett, continuing to notch a new kill count on each of his chosen victims as he targets them to continue his 64 murder spree. But if that's the case, then either the newspaper got it wrong or 37 is a little low because you have to subtract the 12 original victims, and his new post-death spree, which starts at 13, as we'll later discover, is only 25. Like the cold open, it's another sequence that seems to be playing unfair with the audience to keep them from figuring things out a little too fast. Uh, maybe that's just me. Frank returns to his dilapidated, half-completed house and gets his ghostly pals Cyrus and Stuart out of the trunk. Stuart is a neurotic white guy from the 50s who has difficulty relaxing enough to pass through solid objects at times, while Cyrus is, well, he's a 70s exploitation stereotype complete with leisure suit and afro. 
it is safe to say that Peter Jackson has experienced his share of controversy over the years about his use of race in film, what with brain-dead stereotypical jungle natives and Lord of the Rings' use of Maori individuals as Urukai, and this is not going to dispel that controversy despite Chi McBride's efforts to inhabit the stereotype with warmth and charisma. They bicker at length about the job, with Cyrus talking about forming an African-American apparition coalition to lobby for more rights, and Frank taking the stance that they're lucky isn't sending them back to the cemetery. This argument goes on significantly longer in the extended edition, with Cyrus popping up in the shower and Stuart getting fly spray in the face that temporarily discorporates him. As they argue, a spectral dog plays with a jawbone that belongs to the judge, a Wild West gunslinger who's so old that even his spectral form is falling apart. Again, this is another necessary use of CGI. You just can't make a costume that has most of its middle torso missing. It was either CGI, or it was stop motion, or it was blue screen, and frankly, those are all kind of going to be the same thing. The judge and Frank have a heart-to-heart, -heart, and it's clear that Frank respects the older ghost's opinion a lot more than the others. Nonetheless, he can't bring himself to give up on the frightening game, one thing I will unabashedly complain about. The title for this movie is vague, forgettable, and unhelpful, because he says he needs to finish the house he and his wife are building together. One of the reasons I think this movie may have failed is simply that Michael J. Fox is playing so much against type here. Audiences weren't used to seeing him as someone broken and sad and lonely and filled with self-loathing, and I think it may have been hard for them to accept a character so different from his usual Marty McFly persona, even though he does a great job in the part. The scene ends in the director's cut, with Cyrus and Stuart testing out a new Grim Reaper look with a black tarp over their heads, one that Frank reacts uncharacteristically sharply to. Foreshadowing? Stuart suggests chaining it to a white sheet, and she McBride does a fantastic job of facial acting as he just looks at Stuart before pointing out that white sheets might have a very different meaning for him. Again, Cyrus is stereotyped pretty hard here, but the actor is having a lot of fun with it. The next day, Frank gets the mail and finds out that he is 15 grand in hock to the bank and they're about to foreclose. He decides to go after richer clients with sharper, scarier hauntings, and picks a wealthy woman with three children as their next target. But despite staging a very real haunting, complete with levitating children, word has gotten out in the local paper about Bannister's coffin-chasing antics at funerals, and she kicks him right back out of the house she called him to. The director's cut contains an extended sequence of Frank driving dangerously to get past a funeral procession to the site of the haunting, which again features some very nice stunt driving, but probably isn't necessary. Now, I hate to keep harping on the weirdness of this movie's premise, but I have a hard time understanding how this particular sequence is supposed to work. Because the thing about Frank Bannister is, uh, he is a con man, but the hauntings aren't fake, they're entirely real. This woman literally had her children picked up, levitated across the room, and pushed into her chest until she toppled over, but because she read that it was fake in a newspaper, she just decided it wasn't really happening? Believe me, I wish people thought as highly of the news as that. Why did the ghosts give up? Why didn't they redouble their efforts? If it were me, I would have torn the newspaper up in front of her face and see what she thought about that. But for whatever reason, Frank instead goes to confront Magda Reese jones at the local paper. She's happy to take the moral high ground with him, which is amusing for someone who sent reporters to a funeral to interview the bereaved, and he departs in a huff, only to bump into the ghost of Ray Linsky following the funeral procession that Frank outdrove earlier, which turns out to be Ray's. 
Ray is so relieved to find someone who can see him that he doesn't even think about the fact that Frank turns out to be a legit psychic and not a fraud like he said back when he was alive, and Frank takes the opportunity to explain a few of the facts of death. It turns out that if Ray had passed through the tunnel of light that appeared when he died of an apparent heart attack, he'd have become a pure spirit and gone on to the afterlife. But because he refused, he has to spend a year as an earthbound emanation, a cloud of invisible rotting particles suspended in a mist of ectoplasm. Weirdly, the movie mentions ectoplasm as a tactile, sticky substance a lot, but you never see any of it anywhere clinging to anything. It's a little strange, maybe they were relying too much on CGI, or maybe they realized they were already borrowing pretty heavily from Ghostbusters as it was without sliming people. Frank drives Ray to his own funeral and is confronted by the cemetery's guardian, an apparently pure spirit named Hiles, played in a wonderful cameo by the legendary Arlie Ermey, who manifests as a drill sergeant and who says he's there for an 85-year tour of duty to prevent the worst of the ghosts from the graveyard from escaping. He doesn't like Frank's presence because he believes, not unreasonably, that Frank is there to poach unscrupulous specters to aid him in his frightening business. Sorry, you can't talk about the man without doing the impression. But Frank is only there out of a sense of obligation to Ray, and he slips away to join the funeral already in progress. Ray is so freaked that he falls into his own grave, the coffin is lowered right through him in a nice little visual set piece, and while Frank waits for everyone to leave so that he can help him back out, he bumps into Sheriff Walt Perry, the local law enforcement. Walt mentions that Frank was the last person to see Ray alive apart from his wife, and mentions that also they had a little bit of a fight, and very unprofessionally shares that all of the heart attack victims have had no sign of cardiovascular issues, but do have signs of blunt force crushing trauma on the tissues of the heart itself, as though it were literally squeezed until it couldn't beat anymore. He asks Frank how that could be. I, I really think that Sheriff Walt thinks he's Columbo, but he's really just telling people things that should not be told. But Frank's too distracted by Ray's cries of distress, they're filling in the grave on top of Ray, to answer. Frank digs Ray out, and as the two of them are leaving, Frank is intercepted by Lucy, who still believes in him despite the newspaper articles. Frank passes along that Ray still loves her very much, and the three of them end up that evening at Excalibur, the restaurant that Ray loved so much, to celebrate the deceased's anniversary dinner. It's so interesting to see this scene because it really shows how effective Frank could be as a psychic if he chose to. He's plucking little details from conversation with the ghost that he couldn't possibly have known, proving without a doubt that what he knows is real and comes from communication with the supernatural. It really lends credence to the idea that on some level he wants his scam to fail. Or maybe he's just too honest in all the wrong ways to be a good con artist. After he relays Ray's inadvertent confession that he blew $16,000 of the couple's money on a bad investment, Lucy confesses that she hasn't loved Ray in a long time, which predictably sets him off on a tantrum that only Frank can hear. He manages to channel his anger into physical action, though, at least enough to knock over a wine glass into Frank's lap. And while Frank is in the restroom cleaning up, he sees a man with the number 38 written in fiery sigils on his forehead. But this time, he sees what happens next. The phantasmal figure of the Grim Reaper comes through the bathroom mirror, reaches into the man's chest, and stops his heart dead before coming back the way it came. As the man ascends through the tunnel of light into the afterlife, Frank runs away to chase the Reaper and spots it on the roof. 
It flies away and Frank gives chase, not realizing that he was seen leaving and has now been spotted in the vicinity of two murderers. But his bad driving is his downfall, and the ghost escapes. Meanwhile, back at the police station, the cops decide to bring him in for questioning. And speaking of questioning, Lucy is brought in as a witness and is interrogated by Special Agent Milton Dammers, portrayed by Jeffrey Combs with a collection of nervous tics and high-strung weirdness that I don't think any other actor since Anthony Perkins could have pulled off. Dammers gets nauseated by women yelling, maintains what he calls a territorial bubble, I want a t-shirt that says, you are violating my territorial bubble, and is fixated on the notion that Frank Bannister is responsible for all 26 deaths over the course of four years, despite the fact that he can only be connected to three of the victims, and two of them only casually. Oh yes, three. Because as Dammers points out, five years ago, Bannister was seen arguing with his wife Deborah over the design of their dream home, and drove off with her still arguing by his own admission. The car went off the road and crashed in the woods, Deborah was found dead, and Frank was found wandering dazed and confused. Frank's toolbox was missing its utility knife, a highly significant fact because Deborah had the number 13 carved into her forehead, and okay, let's just take a moment to talk about that, because this is really the thing that stands out most on rewatching. Because as we later find out, Johnny and Patricia carved the kill count of each and every one of their victims onto the corpse's forehead as they murdered their way through the hospital, ending with victim number 12, whose ghost we later see still bearing the mark of his death. This was something that absolutely would have been known to the police, if not the general public, even if the murders happened 26 years previously. Patricia Bradley was released from prison in 1990 according to the film's chronology which means that weeks, possibly just days after the release of one of the most notorious murderers in Fairwater's history, a woman turned up dead with the number of Bradley and Bartlett's next victim carved into her forehead within walking distance of the killer's new residence, and the cops immediately said, Huh, bet it's the husband. <laughs> Let's make this perfectly clear. Patricia has no alibi. She was there, and she was the one who mutilated the body after Johnny did the killing. Um, spoilers. She took the knife with her and hid it so badly that Lucy finds it within about five minutes of wandering around the Bradley home. There is no way she could have concealed her involvement in this given even the most cursory of examinations. And the cops did nothing? And they still suspect Frank four years later? Admittedly, it is mostly just Dammers who suspects Frank. And if there is a single thing about this movie that's incredibly realistic, it's the cops ignoring clear and obvious physical evidence because it doesn't point to the guy they've already got stitched up to the crime because they're quote-unquote following their gut. But still, it's something that really stands out in hindsight. Back with the ghosts, the judge is convinced that Frank saw the genuine Grim Reaper, the actual physical embodiment of death itself. I kind of love that this movie isn't afraid to throw out big wild plot swerves like this that turn out to be nothing more than someone being absolutely wrong about what they thought they saw. There's seriously about 20-30 minutes of the movie where they let you sit with the idea that Frank is confronting the specter of death itself, and then, nope, just a red herring. This movie is a journey, is what I'm trying to say. And speaking of journeys, when Frank sees another tunnel of light opening above the local museum, he races to the scene to see if he can catch the killer. Incidentally, for a small town, Fairwater has one hell of a museum. Maybe it's a legacy from the town founder or something? The deceased turns out to be the reporter who exposed Frank, and Magda Reese jones angrily confronts him, 
only for her anger to turn to fear when Frank sees the number 40 on her forehead and realizes she's the next victim. Also, he killed 25 people over four years, but he's gone after four or five in the span of about two days. I guess something's really getting him worked up, but... Uh, he tries to save her, but the cops show up and it looks like the Reaper is going to claim another victim. But just then, the judge arrives and shoots the ghost repeatedly with his spectral six-shooters. Feeling reinvigorated, the judge then... Um, has sex with a mummy? Possibly with a ghost inside it? Possibly non-consensually? It's the single most misguided and ill-placed moment in the whole film... The Reaper returns just as the judge finishes, slicing him in half. Apparently this was planned at one point to be a mere inconvenience to him, forcing him to crawl around for the rest of the movie, but as it stands, it's one of the more interesting stakes raisers we get. After all, a movie where ghosts are commonplace and predictable runs the risk of being less than entirely engaging. Why are we afraid for our heroes when we know they'll continue to exist in some form? But if the Reaper can kill even a ghost, then there's a real threat even to the supernatural characters. It's very clever and very effective. The Reaper then goes after Magda, but Frank knocks her out and carries her away from the museum bodily with the cops in hot pursuit. Thankfully, Cyrus and Stuart disable the police cars, but Frank is, let's all say it again, a terrible driver, and winds up going off the road in the exact same place he did with his wife. The Reaper kills Magda as Frank has a post-traumatic flashback to his wife's murder, and her spirit, who doesn't realize what killed her, uses her last moments before passing through into the afterlife to blame him for her death. He goes to the police and, racked with survivor's guilt, effectively turns himself in, refusing to speak up in his own defense. When Lucy tries to stick up for him, he's the first to tell her that he's a horrible person and she should leave him alone and live her own life. She leaves, still followed by her dead husband. Dammers interrogates Frank, laying out his theory that the Grim Reaper figure that Frank keeps seeing is actually a manifestation of his own inner demons, and that he's subconsciously using telekinesis to stop his victim's hearts, and that only the lead breastplate that Dammers is wearing can stop it. Again, this turns out to be 100% red herring, but Combs sells it with such absolutely ferocious conviction that for a moment you're seriously ready to believe that we're off on another plot swerve and Frank is going to be the bad guy in a Forbidden Planet type scenario. Certainly Frank is ready to believe it, the theory feeds right into his survivor's guilt and he essentially goes catatonic in the interrogation chair. Dammers puts him back in his cell, convinced that he'll probably wind up committing suicide before the case goes to trial like so many of his others, apparently. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that he's not a very good detective. Cyrus and Stuart try to help him escape, but he doesn't seem to recognize their existence anymore. Lucy goes to Frank's half-finished house, trying to understand what motivates him, and Ray is furious to find the notes on the planned Minsky scam, but of course Lucy can't see or hear him, and she instead finds the garden Frank planted in honor of his wife. She realizes there's more to him than fraud, just as Patricia's mother leaves a message on Frank's answering machine asking for help in getting rid of evil spirits, and she decides to investigate. She sneaks inside, not seeing the supernatural horror of the house that transfixes Ray's ghost with terror, and Patricia quickly finds her and helps conceal her. Lucy tries to explain that the evil spirits are a product of her mother's delusions and that she's being abused, a theory apparently borne out by the urn of her dad's ashes that Patricia's mom supposedly forces her to keep nearby as a perpetual reminder of her involvement in her father's shame and humiliation. 
Her father was the hospital administrator. He wasn't a victim of the killings, but he apparently died of grief and shame at, at having a daughter so evil. Lucy offers to help Patricia to leave, and sobbing, Patricia agrees, but she takes the time to bring Lucy into her mother's room and show her the newspaper clippings of the murders, which seems more than a little odd, especially after her mother returns and Patricia hides Lucy in her mom's closet to keep her safe. Lucy finds Frank's knife there. Again, I have to imagine the police didn't even bother getting a warrant for the murderer's house, and takes it with her as she sneaks back out while Patricia distracts her mother. She doesn't realize that she's being followed by the ghost in the walls, but Ray does, and he sacrifices his afterlife battling the specter long enough for her to escape. Again, I really love what this does to the stakes here. Just when you're sure that the worst has happened to a character, you find something that can even kill the dead. Lucy returns to the station and tells Frank that she's found exonerating evidence, but he's not ready to listen yet. He's still lost inside himself. But Lucy calls him out on his inability to move on and cope with his wife's death, and the two of them share an embrace. Frank's supernatural vision returns, just in time to see the number 41 on Lucy's forehead. The Reaper arrives mere seconds later, and although Cyrus and Stuart put a valiant struggle up against it, Stuart gets a scythe through the head and melts into disassociated goo. But his sacrifice, and later Cyrus's sacrifice, although we don't see that on camera, gives Frank and Lucy time to overpower Dammers and the deputy and escape, and they head out into the night where Frank plans to confront the Reaper spirit to spirit by killing himself with Dammers' gun. But Lucy has a better idea. She smuggles him into the hospital and doses him up with barbiturates to slow his heartbeat before locking him into a chest freezer, a process that will induce a temporary state of technical cessation of life, but one that she believes that she can revive him from so long as he doesn't stay in there for too long. Unfortunately for her, Dammers has followed them to the hospital and decides that maybe Frank Bannister doesn't need to ever stop being dead. He kidnapped Lucy off to the local cemetery, but Frank, in spectral form, goes after them. And yes, she does try yelling loudly at Nammers, he just turns up the radio to full volume. The Reaper turns out to be following both of them, though, and Frank engages in spectral combat with it to keep it away from Lucy. He's clearly unmatched, but he uses cars and other local hazards to keep it off balance and unable to deal him a post-fatal blow. While he's fighting it, Lucy tries to convince Nammers to take him back, only to discover, at least in the director's cut, that the agent's nervous, twitchy behavior is the result of massive post-traumatic stress disorder after a career of infiltrating cults that has left him physically and mentally scarred. Getting out of the police car in a panic, he points to each and every one of the horrible memories carved into his flesh. Three years undercover drinking goat's blood, involved in ritualistic cannibalism, and seemingly uses telekinetic abilities of his own to start the ignition, but it turns out to be Frank doing it all. Bannister backs the car up, but just then Hiles arrives and tries to confine them to the cemetery grounds. But the Reaper is still in hot pursuit and re-kills Hiles before he can do more than draw his machine guns. But it turns out that any old ghost can use them, and Frank opens fire on the Reaper until he's barely even a puddle of ectoplasm as Lucy escapes back to the hospital in the police car. A face forms out of the ectoplasm, though, and of course, it's Johnny Bartlett. He escaped from hell and still trying to up his score 31 years later. Bartlett tries to reform himself, but Frank leaps on him and pummels his spectral body before grabbing his scythe and preparing to re-kill him with it once and for all. But just then, Lucy revives him, and he's unceremoniously yanked back into his own body. 
Frank warns Lucy of the truth, and the two of them realize that Bartlett must be the evil spirit that Patricia's mother was talking about. Lucy goes to rescue Patricia. Her mother is less than amenable to the idea of leaving. Patricia and her mother have a private conversation on the subject in the bedroom that ends with Patricia coming down moments later, all smiles, happy to go to the police. But she's secretly talking to a weakened but still entirely present Johnny as much as to Lucy, and it's soon obvious that she was never an unwilling accomplice at all. She was Johnny's partner in crime, and she's more than happy to do his killing for him until he gets back his unearthly power. Suspicious, Lucy goes up to talk to Patricia's mother, who is unsurprisingly very dead. Patricia goes after her, first with a knife and then with a gun, but just then Frank shows up to rescue her. The two of them hide in Patricia's bedroom, fending off Patricia as well as Johnny's efforts to manipulate physical objects to kill them, and discover that the ashes Patricia claimed were her father's are actually Johnny's. Which, um, who let her have those? Who even saved those? Do mass murderers usually get a really nice urn? I feel like there's an untold story there. Thinking quickly, the two of them decide to hoof it to the disused hospital, which is right nearby and which has a chapel that they can use to consecrate the ashes and banish the ghost. They go out through the window and head into the abandoned building with Patricia in hot pursuit. The three of them play cat and mouse for a while, with Frank and Lucy looking for the chapel and Patricia looking for them, and Frank begins to have psychic visions of the hospital massacre that shows him Johnny hunting down the victims who sought the sanctuary of the church on the fourth floor. Disturbing, but handy. As they flee up the stairs, Dammer shows up still firm in his conviction that all the deaths can be attributed to Frank's superpowers. Lucy and Frank are forced to split up, with Dammer's grabbing Lucy and Frank narrowly escaping Patricia as he sees her past self eagerly participating in the 1964 murders. Lucy gets away from Dammer's, but finds herself trapped in a disused elevator halfway between the third and fourth floors, and when Frank catches up with her, she slips him the ashes through the bars to take into the chapel. In Frank's supernatural vision, it gleams with radiant light, but Dammer's ruins everything. He gets the urn away and dumps it out, convinced that he's helping Frank confront his delusions of a ghostly killer, and shoots Frank in the arm when he tries to fight back. But just as he's about to finish the job, Patricia shows up, and Frank flings himself down just in time for Dammer's to catch the fatal shot right through the head. There's a wonderfully gross moment where the head explodes, leaving Dammer's ghostly face framed in the space it occupied just moments previously. But Frank's dive sends him crashing through floor after floor all the way down to the basement, and Patricia goes after Lucy. Lucy manages to get the elevator moving down again, and everyone winds up in the basement. There's a vision here of Patricia playfully begging Johnny for mercy, which is maybe supposed to explain the cold open, but it's staged very differently and isn't anything like the way Dee Wallace played it earlier. Lucy tries to help Frank to his feet, but Patricia knocks her out, and Frank has a flashback to his own wife's death where he realizes that Patricia and Johnny murdered her. Which we all kind of knew, but hey, it's not always a bad thing to show a dramatic moment instead of just telling it. Patricia tries to shoot Frank, but the gun is empty. She instead gets around behind him, puts the shotgun up against his throat, and strangles him to death, then grabs a nearby pickaxe from a pile of disused equipment and goes to kill Lucy while Johnny holds her down. Now, it's never spelled out that Frank's attack left him too weak to just instantly kill people the way he did earlier, but it's certainly very heavily implied. But just as she prepares to land the fatal blow, Frank's ghost shows up and literally rips her spirit from her body, sending them both up the tunnel of light to the afterlife. 
Johnny gives chase, and the two of them have a tug-of-war that ends with Frank in heaven and Patricia pulling free at the last moment. Patricia and Johnny pledge to go back down and continue their killing spree, but, well, it turns out that's not quite how this works. Because as Cyrus and Stuart show up in their pure spirit forms to greet Frank, I guess the judge had better things to do? The ethereal tunnel of light turns into the inside of a grotesque intestine. Demonic tentacles with hideous mouths grow out of the walls, grappling the ghosts of Patricia and Johnny, and then the whole thing closes its mouth to reveal a titanic demon worm that plunges down into the fires of hell. Frank sees his wife Deborah at last, and he's ready to be with her, but Stuart and Cyrus tell him that it's not his time, and send him back into his own body for a touching reunion with Lucy. Sometime later, Frank is having his half-finished house demolished over a picnic with Lucy when Sheriff Perry shows up to ask Frank if he knows anything about Ouija boards. Turns out they found several of them at the Bradley house, used by Patricia to contact the afterlife and spring Johnny Bartlett from hell before her mother figured out what was happening and started doping her up so she couldn't join Johnny on his killing sprees. It's a little bit clunky as exposition dumps go. Frank even replies with, Nice epilogue, Walt! And it's really not necessary. I think we all understood that Patricia summoned Johnny back when this whole thing started. The sheriff offers to write a book with Frank on the whole affair, but Frank points to the empty cop car and suggests he collaborate with his guardian angel instead. Walt laughs, but as he gets in and drives away, we can see Dammers in the backseat looking spectral and depressed as only Jeffrey Combs can. Lucy comments on Dammer's bleak expression, and Frank realizes that she's come out of all this able to see ghosts the same way he can. She playfully pursues him as the credits roll to the tune of Don't Fear the Reaper. Apparently, because you can just kick the Reaper's ass, I guess. It's a fun way to end what's essentially a light-hearted movie, and honestly, I don't want these two to end up traumatized by what they went through. I want them to have the cathartic experience because they need to move on with their lives, because ultimately that's what so many ghost stories are about. They're about moving on. The afterlife is just the rest of your life, and the ghost is the person you were yesterday. And Frank Bannister has finally banished his ghosts. And will I hang on to this movie? For now, yes. Unfortunately, this particular copy has a few skipping issues right around the cemetery scene. I supplemented it with a streaming rental to get the details. But I'd rather have a less than perfect version than nothing at all, so I'll keep it on my shelf until I find something that doesn't have any glitches. If there is something that doesn't have any glitches, for all I know this is a pressing problem and not a scratch. Physical media has its advantages, but it has its downsides too. And if you want to talk about physical media, Peter Jackson's pre-Lord of the Rings career, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash HalfPriceHorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, well, if this podcast has a slogan, it's probably, I was gonna do the premature burial, but... In this case, that sentence ends with, but I found the brand new Barbara Crampton movie at Half Price Books just days after it came out on Shudder, and it's so rare that I get to talk about new movies that I'm jumping on that sucker. And in this case, sucker is a very literal description of our next movie, because I'm going to talk about the vampire film Jacob's Wife. See you then.